Look, in those dark moments of despair, when you wonder if the world can ever truly change, I present you with this. In 2003, people could smoke indoors and no one said a damn thing about it. Change happens. Keep the faith. Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer YouTube series and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Dirty Girls, the 18th episode of Season 7. Dirty Girls aired on April 15, 2003, and was written by Drew Goddard, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor, and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by Michael Gershman. This is Gershman's directorial bow for Buffy. He was also cinematographer for the first 86 episodes of Buffy, so he was more than just a visiting director. He was part of the Buffy family, part of the visual aesthetic. Gershman directed one of the first truly auteured episodes of Buffy, season two's Passion. He was at the directorial helm for 10 episodes of the series, including some real standouts like Consequences, A New Man, Blood Ties, and Seeing Red. Gershman died at the age of 73 on March 10th, just two weeks ago from the time of this taping of Still Pretty. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to him and his memory. It was a privilege to talk about his work. All right. Let's go on patrol. In Dirty Girls, a man dressed as a priest who calls himself Caleb picks up a potential on the run from the bringers, then stabs the girl and throws her out of his car, leaving her as a message for Willow and her passenger to find. Yep, guess I'm back in Sunnydale. Face Return begins with a comedy of errors with Spike. You protecting vampires? Are you the bad slayer now? Am I the good slayer now? and a tense reunion with the Scoobies. Check it out, brats all woman size. But she settles in quickly, making friends with Spike in the basement. In case you're feeling all dust-happy again after a long incarceration. Well, not if you're all repenty, takes the fun out of it. After getting fired from her job at the school, Buffy heads to the hospital as the injured potential, named Shannon, tells the story of Caleb's attack and relays his message for Buffy. He said, I have something of yours. While Caleb traipses down serial killer memory lane with the first out at the vineyard, Buffy starts to make plans to go on the offensive, despite Giles' reservations. We cannot go into battle unprepared. We have to have more time. Buffy and Faith track a bringer to the vineyard, then gather up the forces to pull off the raid. When they get there, however, Caleb is more powerful than anticipated. He knocks Buffy out and cuts through the potentials like a hot knife through butter before finally setting his sights on Xander. Well, you're the one who sees everything, aren't you? Well, let's see what we can do about that. As Caleb preaches to his faithful flock of the evil one, Buffy wanders the streets of Sunnydale alone. And all they have to do is take one more step, and I'll kill them all. She, I told you it had a happy ending. After the cold open in Dirty Girls, we start the episode with one of the most appalling Xander sequences we've had to date. And that, unlike other bars for Xander, is a pretty high bar. The sexualizing of hunted teenage girls terrified for their lives, even in a dream sequence, is problematic on so many levels, I don't even think I can count them all. But let's talk a little bit about Xander as the Joss Whedon self-insertion fantasy. 
Joss Whedon, as you all have certainly heard by now, is a problematic and complicated figure when it comes to feminism. On the one hand, he created Buffy while thinking specifically about creating a feminist story in which the pretty blonde who always gets killed in the horror films is, in reality, the thing that the monsters are afraid of. It's a nice subversion of the trope, definitely groundbreaking for its time. And Buffy has a lot of strong feminist themes that work wonderfully, some of the most powerful of which are evident in this very episode. But on the other hand, Whedon has exhibited some troubling behavior with regard to women in his personal life. And that sheds an illuminating, if disturbing, light on the character of Xander, who Whedon has said he patterned after himself. Privilege makes you blind to certain things, and the areas of Whedon's blindness seem to be predominantly packed inside the patriarchal Trojan horse that is Xander Harris. When Xander behaves badly, which is mostly in regard to women, he is always given a pass. What is, on its face, abhorrent behavior with regard to male sexual entitlement becomes, through Xander, something we're supposed to see as cute in a very boys-will-be-boys as an adorable kind of way. Like when he felt entitled to Buffy's return of his affections. Cassandra, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't think of you that way. I'll try. I'll wait. Xander. No. Forget it. I'm not him. I mean, I guess the guy's got to be undead to make time with you. When, in another disturbing dream sequence, he managed to objectify everyone from Willow and Tara to, most appallingly, Joyce. You know, a man's always after conquest. I'm a conquistador. The way he constantly condescended to and insulted Anya, the way he cheated on Cordelia, and the way he degraded Willow by making her the other woman, these are all appalling behaviors which passed by mostly unchallenged. Now, I hear y'all shouting, Willow cheated too. Yes, yes, she did. But afterward, Willow felt bad for Oz and Cordelia. Xander felt sorry. For himself. You want to do guilt of Palooza? Fine, but I'm done with that. Starting this minute, I'm gonna grab a hold of that crazy little thing called life and let it do its magical little Healy thing. What's done is done. Let's be in the moment. Behold the beauty that is now. And we'll get to a full discussion of all that when Still Pretty starts over as a traditional conversational podcast with my co-host, film theory geek and brilliant feminist thinker, Noelle LaCroix. The new Still Pretty, which will launch when this video series and season seven are finished, will start over at season one. And you can bet we're going to talk at length about Xander's problematic past as we relive it all over again. My point is, these offenses are pulled off the top of my head with Xander. His problematic rap sheet is long and varied, most specifically in the way his objectification of and sexual entitlement to women are portrayed as kind of adorable. But as Jennifer Cruzy once said, if you can't be a good example, be a horrible warning. And Xander is our horrible warning of what happens when patriarchal values are so ingrained in us culturally that we can't even see them. Xander is a lovable character in so many ways, but in an episode where we are actively illustrating toxic masculinity in Caleb while deliberately turning a blind eye to it with Xander shows us exactly how this kind of thing functions psychologically and socially. Okay, believe it or not, the blind eye pun I just did there was not intended. But the irony of Xander being the one who sees all when he is the very source of the troublesome elements we most often fail to see, eh, 
I'm leaving it in. Some of the most toxic elements of our cultural psychology are delivered to us with a spoonful of Xander's adorable sugar. And that's what makes Xander actually more poisonous than Caleb, because at least with Caleb, we are supposed to see a villain. Now you may say, hey, it was a dream, lighten up, and I get that. Except that it's not a dream. If a guy has a sexual dream about teenage girls having lesbian pillow fantasy fight, whatever. He doesn't have control over that, and God knows he's been culturally primed for exactly that sort of thing. But if a guy writes a script with a dream sequence that objectifies young girls and then it passes by dozens of others as it is filmed and released into the culture without commentary or question, that is another thing entirely. Look, I love Xander. I have always loved Xander. I will always love Xander, and I know I'm not alone. And there is good reason to love Xander, some of which we get in this very episode. This girl has died two times, and she's still standing. You're scared. That's smart. You got questions. You should. But you doubt her motives. You think Buffy's all about the kill. Then you take the little bus to battle. I've seen her heart, and this time not literally. And I'm telling you right now, she cares more about your lives than you will ever know. But it's specifically because of that love and because the creators of this show don't hold him to account for the toxic masculinity he delivers with a quippy line and a charming smile that it becomes our job as critical thinkers to hold him to account, to suck that poison out of the show so we can move on to talk about what is kind of a kick-ass episode of Buffy. What the hell? What are you doing? I'm on your side. Yeah? Maybe you haven't heard. I've reformed. So have I. I reformed way before you did. Before I get into this discussion about faith, a mild spoiler warning for some story elements in Angel. I personally feel that a good story can't be spoiled, but if you disagree with this assessment, you may want to skip ahead a couple of minutes. Although, honestly, I'm not spoiling anything that hasn't been spoiled already if you watched this episode, and it's worth it for the discussion. But I wanted to give y'all a heads up just in case. When we think about redemption arcs, we usually think about men, right? Othello, Jamie Lannister, Severus Snape, Darth Vader, Angel, Spike, even Giles. We get him post-redemption after his Ripper days, but those elements are still in there. Now, classically, most redemption arcs end in death, especially if a character has been so bad he can only purchase his redemption through self-sacrifice. Alternately, we don't see many redemption arcs for women. Bad women are typically punished with death. The Wicked Witch of the West, Catherine Earnshaw from Wuthering Heights, every woman who has ever had sex in a horror movie ever since the beginning of time. But they are not customarily allowed to search for their own redemption first, and they are not redeemed in death. They are punished. But here we have Faith, who was last seen before this most recent appearance spanning episodes of both Angel and Buffy, three years earlier in the Angel episode Sanctuary, when she chooses to go to prison to pay for her crimes. Now, Faith's redemption comes from her willingly allowing herself to be held in prison, which she broke out of to help with a crisis on Angel and then skipped on up to Sunnydale to finish out the season with the rest of our merry band of Scoobies. The fact that Faith, as a woman, is allowed to live at all after being both sexually assertive and guilty of murder is kind of a revolutionary moment in our cultural storytelling about women. It's not that we've never seen redemption arcs for women in literature and pop culture, and we're definitely seeing them more in recent years, but Faith is one of the first characters to break that particular glass ceiling. Historically, women are not allowed redemption for anything worse than gossiping. 
Jane Austen's Emma is a good example of this. Our beloved Miss Woodhouse spends an entire novel working through her redemption arc, but her worst crime is meddling in other people's business. Had she had the temerity to have sex outside of marriage, her head would have been liberated from her shoulders right away, and she would likely have never been a Jane Austen heroine in the first place. Yeah, did you ever think in your entire life you would hear a literary comparison between Emma Woodhouse and Faith Lehane? That's what you come to Still Pretty for, folks. Anyway, when we talk about Buffy's feminist street cred, we can do far worse than point to Faith Lehane being allowed to live long enough to have her life threatened by the first in season seven as Exhibit A. How do you like what I'm wearing? Just another dirty girl. And since you only dress up in dead folk, I'm guessing one has already been paid her wage. Wrapping up an evil, misogynistic serial killer in the cloak of a man of faith with the character of Caleb is an uncomplicated thing to unpack. On its surface, religion is supposed to be one of the unquestionable symbols of goodness, which is of course why so many of the most truly evil people on the planet routinely shield themselves behind an outward obsession with virtue. And there is something about that brand of shameless hypocrisy which makes these kinds of characters such philosophically crunchy sources for fiction. Historically, Buffy's relationship to religion has been limited to surface iconography. The crosses, the holy water, hell, Buffy's weapons chest is routinely filled with communion wafers. Buffy has tiptoed to the edges of the religious well, but has never drunk from it, not until this episode. And that contrast is almost violent now as we dive deep into a very dark space with almost no context. Using religious themes in storytelling is a grand tradition, and talking about religion with any depth is something Buffy has refrained from doing at all, aside from, as I've noted, borrowing surface iconography. Those religious symbols are included only as a reference to traditionally religious vampire mythology in which the only way to stop true evil is through the power of ultimate goodness, symbolized by the church. Buffy picked up the symbols of the church and has been running with them since the first episode, but for the most part, the show has left the associated meaning behind. I mean, let's take a look at it. We've had vampires, demons, true evil, but we don't traipse at all in actual religion as a contrast to that. Buffy never goes to church, even at Christmas. We reference Willow's Judaism thinly, but we never see her at temple or enjoying a Seder during Passover or halting demon-fighting activities in order to observe a Shabbat. Even in season five, when we introduce glory as a god, we're referencing more a classical Greek mythological envisioning of the idea, not a religious one. We did have the monks and medieval knights sort of whisper at religion during season five a bit, but not so much that we'd actually have to think about it. But here, we see one of the most truly evil characters ever to grace the small screen, quoting scripture and wearing the cloth. What are we saying now about religion? That it's irrelevant at best, and at worst, hypocritical and inherently evil. I can't imagine the experience of watching Buffy as a religious person. I come from preachers on both sides. My father was one. My maternal grandfather was one. Both complicated and not unproblematic individuals. I myself am a preacher, although I preach the gospel a story baby, so not exactly the same thing. Still, I feel inherently unqualified to talk much about the complicated portrayals of religion in Buffy. I see Buffy as a decidedly secular text, borrowing symbols but not paying any heed to their cultural power, and as such, leaving a lot of that power on the table untouched. To marry a deeply identified religious figure with the ultimate in evil is an interesting choice for this season, and it adds a layer of disturbing darkness to what is already a fairly dark story arc. 
It's at this point in season seven that I always feel like I do when I've had a bit too much to drink. I'm taking in everything around me, but I have that nagging feeling that I'm missing something that's a little too much for my buzzing brain to process. Caleb's presence at this point in the story is almost overwhelming. I feel like Buffy broke into a vault of symbology and meaning and ran out with its arms full of unearned context, stolen gems falling to the ground as it runs away with a booty it is not prepared to spend properly. In the end, it feels like the show is making a commentary on how the most evil things of all are the things that pretend to be good, but it's borrowing from a space that is so much more complex than it's prepared to deal with. And in the end, it feels unfinished and not fully thought through. At the same time, it's the creepiest thing Buffy has ever done. While I'm almost never truly scared of the overly latex CGI demons dripping ectoplasm and viscera, Caleb scares the hell out of me because we step away from the classic Buffy model of metaphor and move into territory owned and operated by the very real Caleb's we have all met, praising virtue while wreaking havoc on their victims, often through the form of invisible emotional and psychological abuse heaped upon those who are naive enough to equate claims of virtue with actual virtue, and they are not the same thing. Caleb is scary because Caleb is real, and I am not used to Buffy traipsing that close to reality. But despite appearances, I don't think Caleb says much about religion specifically. It's just another carelessly borrowed symbol, a novice wielding a sword he has not been trained to use. And as such, I think I'm going to end the discussion of the religious symbols at play right there. What do you see? Strength. And... The loneliness that comes with real strength. Nothing about my part and bouncy hairdo? You're her. For my money, Dirty Girls is hands down the scariest episode of Buffy. After maybe hush, but it's a tight race. As I talked about in the last episode of Still Pretty, we are now launched into the third act of season seven, where things get darker, consequences get harsher, and we don't know that all of our beloved characters will make it through to the end. The tone-deaf dream sequence with Xander aside, this is a great episode. We get the return of Faith, the continuation of the heartbreaking distance between Buffy and Giles, a few funny moments to lighten the darkness, and the beginning of the grim march toward the final showdown with the first. We go into our final movement with Buffy being lifted up by Xander, only to fail in a battle she was unprepared to wage, resulting in dead and injured potentials, and Xander's loss of his eye. In the end, once again, Buffy is alone. At the end of this episode, I'm always left feeling sad, scared, alone, and grief-stricken. Not emotions I particularly enjoy, but exactly, I think, what the episode wants and needs viewers to feel as we move forward in the story. And that, my friends, is the very essence of effective storytelling. All right, that's it for today. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by Chipperish Media producer Ariella Jaglum. Ariella supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show she wants. Thank you, Ariella, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a Still Pretty producer. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 7, Episode 19, Empty Places. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.